This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. One of the reasons why I think it's so important to talk about abortion in the context of reproductive justice is that we have to recognize that pregnancy is a moment in time, right? And that, you know, you could have a perfect pregnancy, give give birth to a perfect baby, and then bring that baby home to an apartment that has lead paint on the walls or bring that baby home to a neighborhood that doesn't have clean water, or put that baby into a public school that is completely a part of the school to prison pipeline, right? And so we just talk about abortion as this one moment of do I stay pregnant or not stay pregnant? And we don't think about the complexity of people's lives. Hi, I'm Nate. I'm Gail. And this is Full Mutuality. Today on the show, I'm very excited to introduce you all to our guest. Um, her name is Kim Mutcherson. She is professor of law at Rutgers Law School in Camden, New Jersey, and an expert in reproductive justice. Now, there's a whole lot going on there, so we're we're going to dive into it today. This is going to be a fun conversation. Welcome to the show, Kim. Thank you so much for having me. So before we dive into like the meat of this conversation, I do want to start off with some real casual stuff. What are some of your mm-hmm. favorite like activities, books, movies, TV shows, all that fun stuff? Um, well, one of my favorite activities now is playing the piano, um, which I did for years and years and years when I was much younger. And then as a teenager, I did the thing that your parents always say you're going to regret, right? I said, I don't want to play anymore. Didn't play for years. And then... Um, about a year and a half ago, I was like, you know what? I'm going to start playing the piano again. Hmm. So I started taking lessons, and it's 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 great. Nice. I love it. Yeah. Nice. So that's my big thing now. Okay. And that's great because um, you're on sabbatical now, too, so you get yes. the time to to dive into that. Those, exactly. Those hobbies. I, I totally relate to that because um, I do kind of regret I didn't s- stay with music, but like I was, right. I was in the music world for my entire childhood, and then- yeah. Um yeah. you can get back into it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Never too late. Oh, I have a pop culture question for you. So Oh yeah. Um Gail and I have been watching this show that we love. And I know in a previous conversation you had mentioned you read the books, the Silo series. Oh um, yes. Okay. Have, have you had a chance to check out the T V series? So I started watching um the first season and I probably watched two or three episodes okay and i liked it mm. um but not enough to stay with it uh, okay so i will yeah. not read the books because i'm enjoying the tv show yeah. <laughs> usually when i mean you i think they did the it books. well okay yeah but because you know because i have the books in my head it's a little harder to let go of all of that and just focus on what's going on on the t- on television yeah yeah that's tough i'm like kind of similar i, I did that with um the Lord of the Rings, but the mo- the movies were so unique and such yeah. a spectacle that I felt like I really had to stick around for that. Um, but yeah, cool. Okay, so here we go. Um, a little bit more background information on you. So what is it that like motivated you to pursue law um, and then teaching law and then specifically focusing in on reproductive health? So I was one of those weird kids who knew what I wanted to do very young. I was 10 when I decided I wanted to be a lawyer and just never shifted from that. 
um, and just, you know, organized all of my education around that. So went to college, immediately went to law school um, after college. Um, and I went to law school to be a public interest lawyer. That was, you know, my plan, you know, be- best laid plans of mice and men and all that. Mm. Um, and so I graduated and I had a public interest fellowship. I started doing work at a place um, in Manhattan called the HIV Law Project, um, which I loved and got to do amazing work there. Um, and then uh, about uh, two years into that, I thought, you know, I was living in New York. I was living on a public interest lawyer's salary in New York. And I was like, I'm not sure that this is tenable. Um, <laughs> and so I started looking for adjunct teaching work. I thought, you know, I'm probably I feel like I would be good in a classroom and I could make, you know, a little bit more money. Um, and I ended up applying for a job at NYU in their lawyering program. It was a full time job, which is not what I was looking for. Um, but I applied for it. I was confident that I wasn't going to get it. And I got it. Um, and next thing I knew, I was teaching a class uh, at NYU and uh, two years, I t- did that for two years, and I went on the teaching market, got a tenure track job at Rutgers, and I've been there ever since. So wow. I am um, very much an accidental law professor. Um, but once I became a law professor, I obviously was still really committed to the things that I was committed to as a public interest lawyer. Um, and I started thinking about you know issues of civil rights, issues of women's rights. Um, social justice, racial justice. Um, you know, I feel like I feel like I came out of the womb thinking about those things. Um, but it's been, you know, a part of my life really from the beginning. And then through law school is when I really started to focus in on women's rights issues, and then um, eventually on reproductive justice issues. Mm-hmm. What a time in the U.S. to be a part of, you know, reproductive <laughs> women's justice, like. Um, yes. uh, maybe it's in, in, I know Nate has taken a lot of questions and he's prepared himself for this interview, but I haven't. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm so I'm butting in. I hope I don't have, cross out anything you have on your oh, list, fine. Nate. But yeah. I, I was wondering, like, was this shocking for you in the U.S. and like the most recent court? We're going to get into that in more detail, but was it a, was it a big shock? Um, It wasn't, you know, I think before it happened um, and before the leak of the opinion, a lot of us who do this work were of the mind that the Supreme Court was going to do what it had been doing um, for a while, which is every chance that it got chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at Roe. Um, And that's what we were sort of picturing, because the idea that they would completely overrule Roe was so drastic and so, I mean, frankly, so obviously political, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing had changed except for the people who sat on the court. Um, And literally just a couple years before they had an abortion case where they reaffirmed (laughs) Roe. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was really, it was a, it was such a bold move to just say, we've got the, and and this is essentially what happened, right? We've got the votes. And so we're going to overrule Roe. And so I think what I was surprised by was that they did it so quickly um, and that they were so unconcerned with, you know, issues of legitimacy and issues of how people think about the Supreme Court. And I think what has happened since then is that, um, you know, the backlash on the court has just been tremendous. Mm-hmm. You know, thank goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Doesn't impact them at all. Right. They have jobs for life. They're not worried about it. Um, but at least there's a conversation going on that I think is really important, which is a conversation that reminds people that elections matter, not just because of, you know, 
who ends up on your local school board and who ends up being your governor. Um, but federal elections matter because that's how people end up on these courts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those courts matter and they, they mean a lot about what you get to do in your life and people weren't paying enough attention. So yeah. at least people are paying attention now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we'll let's, let's hit rewind on the, the story and then we'll come back to like the present day and the future a little bit. Um, but let's, let's go back to the seventies. Um, and we have the, the landmark decision Roe versus Wade, um, essentially protecting a woman's right to an abortion in general for all the, that entire time from 1973 to 2022. Um, could you give a little bit of history on, on that case? Um, and what those protections meant that were afforded to, to women? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what I always start with when I talk about Roe is that, you know, we're we're in this moment where people are really romanticizing Roe, right, because we've lost it. Mm. Um, but Roe wasn't that great <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, it was a case that came out of Texas. Texas uh, had a statute, you know, all, all bad things start in Texas, I guess. <laughs> um, you feel free to cut that out. Um, nope. <laughs> we we actually have one of one of our good friends who listens to the podcast who's from Texas. She would probably echo your, okay. <laughs> your opinion. All right. I'll accept it then. Um so, you know, Norma McCorvey, she was a young woman, you know, in her young twenties. Um, she was on her third pregnancy. Um, the previous two pregnancies, she had given birth to children who she then put up for adoption. She gets pregnant a third time and she says, you know, I just, I don't want to be pregnant. Texas at the time had a statute that said you could not have an abortion unless your life was in danger. And you basically had to go in front of a panel of doctors and convince them, um, Mm. that you should be able to have an abortion, which of course she wasn't going to be able to do. Um, and so she became, the Roe in Roe versus Wade. Um, and her lawyer, uh, Sarah Weddington, was this, you know, very young uh, feminist lawyer who decided she was going to take this case and amazingly was able to get it all the way up to the Supreme Court. She argued it in the Supreme Court. She also was in her 20s. She was wow. very, very young. Um, and she argued it in front of the Supreme Court and was able to get a decision um, written by Justice Blackman. Um, that essentially said that the Constitution protects a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy. Um, But it was very focused on physicians in a very odd way. Um, Hmm. Justice Blackman had had a career as a lawyer for the Mayo Clinic at one point. And so people think that that's part of what was going through his head, that he wanted a decision that was sort of rooted in science and medicine, and then that would make it uh, more, more palatable, I guess, to people. So the decision that the court came up with was, yes, you have this right to abortion, but the state also has an interest in potential life. And and their goal was to sort of balance those interests. So they came up with a trimester framework, right? They just sort of mapped it on to what pregnancy looks like. And they said in the first trimester, states cannot regulate at all. It's not a state's business what happens to um, in a first trimester. In the second trimester, states can regulate, but they can only regulate to protect the health of the pregnant woman. And then in the third trimester, states could go so far as to ban abortion, um, but any ban on abortion had to have an exception for the life or health of the pregnant woman. And that was basically... Um, you know, the cornerstone of law Mm -hmm. um, until about 1992. And in 1992, 
the court decided a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which came out of Pennsylvania. Um, and in that case, the court said, actually, in Roe, we put too much emphasis on the woman's rights and not enough emphasis on the state's interest in potential life. And so they said, we're going to throw out this whole trimester thing um, and we're just going to focus on the line of viability. And that's going to be the dividing line between when you can ban abortion um, and when you can just regulate abortion. And so um, still said you have to have an exception for the life or health of the pregnant person. Um, but then in Casey, they said that because the state has an interest in fetal life from the moment that a pregnancy begins, that states can do things to persuade people not to have abortions. Um, states can regulate in much more robust ways. Um, they can, for instance, require um, biased informed consent. And so some states have consent informed consent requirements that actually are based on bad science, right? If you have an abortion, you have a greater risk of having um, um, breast cancer. Not true, hmm. right? Um, so, so states really you know, took that freedom and, and they ran with it. So even before Dobbs happened, um, a lot of states had really significant restrictions on access to abortion, um, so much so that there were n a number of people in this country living in places where even though abortion was ostensibly legal, it was not accessible. I see. Yeah. Ooh. so... Yeah, yeah, I could totally see how we have uh, gotten to this place where we kind of idolize, romanticize uh, that that decision. Um, yeah, I had no idea. So much details of that court case that are just not in public sort of conversations. Yeah, yeah. So, so talking like, I guess, on the ground, um, during the years that Roe was the law um mm -hmm. what, what was the the landscape like um and I, I realize you know for for our audience who's in the u.s you all know everything varies so drastically from state to state yes if you don't live in the u.s and and you're listening to this podcast the the u.s is a funny country because <laughs> there are so many variations from one yeah. state to another um, like if you live in New Jersey, you have a whole different set of rights from somebody who might live in Alabama or Oklahoma. Right. So, or Pennsylvania. Or, or Pennsylvania, right <laughs> across the border. Exactly. Yeah. So what, what was the landscape like on the ground for, uh, for women's health, reproductive rights in general? Um, you know, I guess if, if you give a couple examples from, from different states. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, if you were in a place like New Jersey, you know, of course you had broad access to abortion. You didn't have um, any of the sort of bias informed consent requirements. You didn't have the waiting period requirements. Um, you know, it was just a, it was a, um, it was a set of circumstances where if you were pregnant and you didn't want to stay pregnant, there were lots of ways for you to terminate that pregnancy and lots of places where you could terminate that pregnancy. Um, and you weren't going to, the law wasn't going to shame you um, for that choice. Um, and then you contrast that with someplace, I'll use Mississippi because that's where, where the Dobbs case came from. Um, you know, by the time the Dobbs case, uh, came about, there was only one abortion clinic left in Mississippi. Um, you know, everybody else had ended up closing, you know, states had created all these different rules, uh, they had, you know, admitting privileges requirements. So anybody who was performing abortions had to have admitting privileges at a local hospital, um, which is totally unnecessary and doesn't protect anybody's health whatsoever. Um, or they had requirements where 
abortion clinics um, had to have the same rules, had to be set up physically um, like a, um, an ambulatory surgical center. Um, so that was things like, you know, the size of the hallways, wow. right? I mean, things that were just ridiculous and totally unnecessary. And again, had nothing to do um, with safety. Um, and then you, of course, had states that were um, uh, making it impossible for people to use telemedicine to have medication abortions early in pregnancy. Um, so, you know, there were all these sorts of ways where um, states, what they really, really wanted was for abortion to be illegal. But because they, we still had Roe, they couldn't make it illegal, right? So all they could do is layer as much sort of process and procedure on top as possible um, to make it really difficult for people to access. And I'll give two other examples that I think are really important. Um, so one is one of the things that happened in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 um, is that the court said that states could require um, young women under the age of 18 to either uh, notify their parents or get consent from their parents before they had an abortion, but that states had to have a judicial bypass option. So you always had to have an option to go to court um, and to stand in front of some strange judge who you don't know and who doesn't know you, um, maybe without a lawyer, uh, and, and make a pitch for why you should be able to have an abortion. So lots of lots of, of states that required that. Um, and then, of course, um, for many, many years, um, Medicaid funds have not been, the federal government has said that Medicaid funds cannot be used for abortions except in a very small sliver um, of cases. And so what that means is that if you're a poor woman and Medicaid is how you get your insurance, um, that Medicaid is not going to pay for you to terminate a pregnancy. And so, you know, people are just scraping together money from as many places as they can. Um, so, you know, the landscape even before Dobbs um, was very patchy and you already had people who sometimes had to do a lot of travel. Um, and of course that's just gotten, you know, exponentially worse since hmm. Dobbs, Dobbs happened. It's interesting. Um, cause like I, I was thinking about the, the, the example that you, that you gave of, of like a girl who, um, the, the parental consent is involved. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it's it to me it just sort of flies in the face of um the spirit of something like HIPAA for instance that, that doesn't that <laughs> exist to protect people's like medical privacy not uh, for young people it's it's <laughs> it's so frustrating yeah and what's interesting is actually is like there are a lot of states that have carve outs in their statutes about um um you know young people consenting to healthcare they have carve outs for you know, accessing drug treatment, right? That you, you're you able to do that and not tell your parents because that's an important thing and we want you to have access to that. Um, or getting treatment for, you know, sexually transmitted infections. We don't want you to be scared to talk to your parents and so we're going to give you a carve out um, so that, so you can do that. Um, and you don't have to go to court to ask a judge if you can get treatment for a sexually transmitted infection. You don't have to go to court and ask a judge if you can go to rehab, right? So it's only abortion that was treated differently. And that's been true for a very long time, right? That abortion gets carved out as this very, very different form of healthcare um, and one which gets, you know, regulated, um, you know, to, to infinity and beyond. Mm. I think that brings us to a point in this conversation where we can sort of pause from the, take, take a quick break from the 
from this part of the conversation and move into a space where we sort of talk about why abortion is such a big deal in in the mm-hmm. US what, like what is the attitude here um the 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 history behind it and whatnot and so the the world that I come from that Gail comes from that like that a lot of our listeners are are all kind of coming to our podcast uh, from is the world of conservative evangelical Christianity and one of the things that that I, I think is worth talking about is the history of evangelicalism's relationship with abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, and and maybe even to, just to paint an even bigger picture of that, like the U.S. versus even other places. I know as a mm. Canadian, when, you know, Roe v. Wade got overturned, <laughs> a Canadian government spoke up right away to say, in Canada, yeah. you guys will still be protected. Like, just sort of an acknowledgement. We don't see things this way. And it was making Canadians nervous. Like, can that can women's rights be just pulled away? The U.S. is right yeah. underneath us. I mean, we're not that different than Americans, are we? And I think there's that sort yeah. of a fear. and. And there is, and there are the difference that I notice from Canada to the U.S. One of the big differences I notice when I cross the border is evangelical influence, and I notice that because I grew up in Canada as an evangelical, and we were a minority fringe within the country. Mm-hmm. And now, when I'm over here, I see my former high control religious group having such a having such a big influence. Like I see it yes. on posters, I see it everywhere, I see it Billboards, on cars, yeah. I see it on like it's so surrounding me that like yeah. I can and then I start digging into the political sphere. I mean I just assumed American citizenship. So I've always been politically you know, minded in the sense of caring, but having to really learn a lot more about how American politics works and just mm-hmm. amazed at how evangelicalism has their foothold so deeply oh. in mm. the political landscape of the U.S. And it's for me, extraordinary. that's it, it it, you notice it when you're from a country that that's not the case. And then you come yep. into a country where that is controlling the landscape of how things are done. Mm. So I just want to back it up even past the U.S. Yeah. because I think Americans might even take for granted how different the U.S. functions maybe than other places mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. of that. That influence. Yeah, there's sort of an assumption that that's normal. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about the moment that we're in is even countries that are deeply religious, like Catholic countries, right? Mm. So, um, you know, Ireland has mm. legalized abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, Mexico has legalized abortion, right? So you've got these places that have been very, very conservative um, about abortion access that are actually moving in the exact opposite direction um, as the United States, which is, is incredibly frustrating. Let's pause here for a bit. It's worth noting that the idea that abortion has been a unifying principle evangelicals have consistently stood against is nothing more than a powerful myth. The history of evangelicalism's anti-abortion activism is far more complicated than the religious right would have everyone believe. In fact, their original unifying ideology was racial segregation in schools and universities. The following information is drawn heavily from a May 2022 article in Politico by Randall Balmer, the John Phillips Professor of Religion at Dartmouth College and author of Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. We'll link to the full article in today's show notes. During the 1970s, the IRS made quite a few attempts to rescind the tax-exempt status of private, church-sponsored segregation academies, institutions that admitted only white students, including my own alma mater, Bob Jones University, which would lose tax-exempt status in 1970 and not regain it again until 2017. 
The battle against what they perceived as government encroachment on their businesses would be an operative principle for many decades to come, but their anger towards racial integration and their defense of segregation was not going to spark the political movement that many evangelical leaders hoped for. It wasn't until a conservative activist named Paul Weirich recognized this that evangelicals began to rally around a different cause in the late 1970s. In 1968, the flagship publication of evangelicalism, Christianity Today, organized a conference with the purpose of discussing the morality of abortion. Almost 30 evangelical theologians participated in the debate for several days, issuing a statement that, according to them, allowed for many different approaches to the issue. Whether the performance of an induced abortion is sinful, we are not agreed. But about the necessity of it and permissibility for it under certain circumstances, we are in accord, read the statement. Carl F.H. Henry, Christianity Today's editor-in-chief from 1956 to 1968, said that a woman's body is not the domain and property of others. And Harold Linzel, who succeeded Henry at the magazine from 1968 to 1978, stated, If there are compelling psychiatric reasons from a Christian point of view, mercy and prudence may favor a therapeutic abortion. In 1971, delegates to the Southern Baptist Convention, conservative evangelicalism's largest American denomination, passed the resolution that called for the legalization of abortion. They reaffirmed their pro-abortion position in 1974, the year after Roe v. Wade was decided, and reaffirmed it again in 1976. In response to Roe v. Wade, W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas and president of the Southern Baptist Convention from 1968 to 1970, issued this statement. I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it has always, therefore, seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. Even one of abortion's greatest enemies, James Dobson, stated in 1973, the same year that Roe v. Wade was decided, that the Bible was silent on the issue of abortion and an evangelical Christian could certainly believe that a developing embryo or fetus was not regarded as a full human being. As support for evangelicalism's crusade against the government for forcing schools to integrate was growing weaker, Paul Weirich stumbled on the issue that he believed would rally evangelicals to their political cause, abortion. Finally, Jerry Falwell and other leaders of the religious right had the issue that would mobilize their followers and, thankfully for them, divert society's scrutiny away from the racist origins of their movement. It would still take some time for the anti-abortion cause to stick with voters and evangelical-friendly politicians. In a 1980 campaign rally in front of over 10,000 cheering evangelicals, Ronald Reagan didn't even mention abortion a single time during his address, even though it would have been an issue du jour. Evangelical leaders conveniently leave out two important pieces of their history when discussing the topic of abortion. First, that anti-abortion positions didn't become the de facto evangelical stance until nearly eight years after Roe v. Wade was decided. And second, that the birth of their political movement was based on defending racial segregation in schools, not on fighting for the lives of fetuses, or as they would put it, unborn babies. Hey there, my name is Allison from Battle Creek, Michigan, and you're listening to Full Mutuality. Hey 
Hey everyone, I'm Jessica from the Leaving the Village podcast. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into this show. We're so grateful that you've decided to spend your time with us. Seriously, Dan, Gail, Kathleen, Nate, Scott, and the rest of us here at the Dauntless Media Collective couldn't produce content like the show you're listening to without your support. I'd also like to invite you even further into the conversation. Right now, there are some great discussions happening over in the Dauntless Media Collective Discord server. If you're interested in chatting with other folks who are deconstructing and decolonizing the oppressive traditions they came from, please feel free to hop onto the server. If you don't know what Discord is, it's a place where communities can gather online for chatting on a wide variety of topics. In our Discord server, we have channels devoted to general deconstruction conversations, some meme sharing, therapeutic venting about whatever religious bullshit you're currently dealing with, and even a channel specifically devoted to talking about the latest episode of the podcast you're listening to right now. I hope you'll join us. You can log in directly to the Dauntless server by clicking on the link in the show notes or heading to dauntless.fm and clicking on the link in the top banner. See you there. It's so fundamentally political, right? And I think that that's such an important thing for people to recognize that the that the shift to abortion was in significant ways. Um, and you know, I say this as an outsider and, and completely, you know, ready to be judged for it. But you know, it wasn't about um, these, you know, critical faith principles that people had been living, no. you know, for centuries. No, it was. All. You know, how do we hang on to expand our political power? And the way you do that is you get your folks to vote for the people who you want to have in office. And what became really clear was that abortion was an issue that people were willing to vote on. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that's been really powerful, you know, there's been some really interesting political science research. And part of what it has shown is that, um, you know, people who are, um, um, you know, deeply religious, you know, evangelical, Catholic, and, you know, some of these other faiths, that they will vote on abortion, mm-hmm. right? Like, that is the issue. That single is voter issues. Yeah, is yeah, yeah, single vote. issue. Yeah, yes. single yep. issue voters. Yeah, and it's extraordinary, yeah. right? Whereas a lot of people on the left, you know, they're voting on, you know, race and gender and immigration mm-hmm. and, you know, all these other sorts of things. Um, and so it's a really powerful tool when you have this one issue um, and particularly when it's an issue where um, it's so easy to vilify the people who disagree with you. Yes. Right. Um, When you can say the people who disagree with us are people who hate children, who want to kill babies, um, who hate families. Right. I mean, that's that's really good rhetoric mm-hmm. to use. Right. Um, and so, I mean, even being able to, um, you know, I describe it as stealing. Right. Stealing the label of pro-life. Right. Yeah. If you're pro-life, then what are the rest of us? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been really, really powerful how um, folks on the right um, and folks in evangelical communities have really rallied around abortion as a way to consolidate political power. Yeah. I think the left should have called it instead of pro-choice, pro-freedom. Then they would have really, (laughs) they would have really had some good marketing going on there because sometimes just the labeling, it just paints a picture of, you know, and that gets people galvanized, right? You care about life and then you start digging and you're like, wait a second, the same group of people that are saying they're pro-life are okay with 
kids getting massacred with guns if they can protect right. gun rights they're okay with, and you know they don't want free health care like you go you start nope. going through the list and you're like life for who for what only the only exactly. the ones who the only fetuses that haven't come out yeah. of the womb yet that's right yeah that's right exactly exactly and, and there it's a convenient defense because you know fetuses can't speak for themselves but that's the moment right. the moment someone can speak for themselves they're no longer they don't their rights know, are not protected yeah. anymore exactly. right that's right yeah, exactly right right uh, now you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps mm, and like you know mm, yeah that. yeah, Two yeah. Old infant, pull yourself <laughs> up by your bootstraps lazy <laughs> i i do find it all interesting too because even even in the the both the catholic and evangelical bible uh the the idea of um life starting at conception that it's not in there uh yeah. nowhere in in any of those texts can that can that concept even be close to found like maybe they might say you know uh you you knit me in my mother's womb before i was even born you knew you know you the hairs on my mm-hmm. head or whatever and, you knew me, you and like, me if you look contextually yeah. got like the, in that story um god was talking to jeremiah and the, the character in the bible jeremiah was feeling you know dejected he felt like he couldn't do what what he was called to do so god you know encouraged him by saying i knew you and i called you to do this thing long before you were ever born it was a very specific conversation between the god character and this other character jeremiah in the in the was it Jeremiah or Nehemiah? I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, one of the characters <laughs> in the Bible. I definitely don't. <laughs> I, it um, is fascinating yeah, to, to uh, look at the texts and to see, I mean, for me anyway, because I grew up with this being the basis of why we believe what we, like evangelicals mm-hmm. are very rooted mm-hmm. in what does the Bible say? And yeah. and it was fascinating for me to understand that for Jewish people, life, most of them believe life begins at first breath. And mm-hmm. that, that's mm-hmm. where our, you know, our Bible comes out of is yeah. the Jewish, you know, Hebrew yeah. Bible. It, it, it's birthed out of that. So it's interesting to, to see the evolution of, of beliefs around when life begins and how evangelicals have sort of turned that into something else out for political yeah. gain. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you also have to sort of think about how um, not only how people can harness religion, but also how they harness, you know, medicine and science, right? Mm. So the fact that we can, um, that we have tools to um, hear a heartbeat, right? Um, mm. Or that we have tools to, I mean, everybody who's had a baby in this country and who got prenatal care has those ultrasound pictures on their refrigerator, yeah. right? Um, and so, you know, we we really sort of um, gave people this way to really visualize what is going on inside of a pregnant person's body um, and to convince people, frankly, you know, and, and the other thing that helps with this is that people are like deeply ignorant <laughs> about their bodies, yeah. right? Um, and so you sort of think about those billboards that, you know, I've seen them in Jersey, but they're, you know, all over the country where it's like, you know, um, you know, my heart started beating at, you know, six weeks or seven weeks or something. And they've got like a six month old baby, right? I promise you, I promise you, <laughs> that is not what a six-week fetus oh my God. embryo really, right, yeah. looks like, right? And so people, because people are, um, you know, ignorant of, of many different things, they are visualizing something that's just not 
true, mm. right? Particularly with, um, you know, most 90 plus percent of abortions in this country happen in the, in the first trimester, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I promise you that what is happening there is not a six month old um, who's being terminated in utero. That's mm-hmm. just not how any of this yeah. works. Yeah. Um, and when people don't understand that, it helps them to then, you know, create this vision of these horrifying things that are happening mm. to babies. And that's just not true. Right, right. And then um, even the conversation around like what they uh, what the, the the right considers late term yeah. abortions, no one who's seeking an abortion like that, that that's under sort of standard um, circumstances would be getting an abortion that late in the pregnancy. The, the the abortions that are happening that late in the pregnancy are the ones where the 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 mother is already attached to this fetus is is probably thinking through names probably ready mm-hmm. like they've they probably painted a room and bought furniture right. and now they're in this incredibly unenviable position of i have to terminate this pregnancy like yes. when you've gotten to that point in a pregnancy you want that child like that's yes. somebody who wants the child that is that's not right. somebody who's that's just right. trying to use this as birth control or or is debating whether or not they want to become a parent no this is this is somebody who's ready and and is waiting for this this child to be born so yeah um, absolutely and the you know the other thing that's really ironic is that because of um, you know, all the new laws that we have and the bans and how difficult it is in so many states now to access abortion, it's actually pushing women later into their pregnancies, mm-hmm, right? Because yeah. now you've got it, you've got to travel, you got to get the money together. Um, the clinics are full. So maybe your appointment, instead of being able to get it in a week, you get it in three weeks, you know, and every single day counts when mm-hmm. you're pregnant, right? Um, and so like the, the ridiculousness, there's so many things that are ridiculous about, you know, what states are doing now, but certainly one of them is that um, you're actually pushing people into their second trimester um, because you're making it harder for people to access abortion. Yeah, yeah. Ugh, it's made everything worse. So I guess I guess yes. now let's let's fast forward. Um, the year is 2022. <laughs> uh, the the story behind the 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 Dobbs v Jackson Women's Health Organization. Um, how like w- could you give us a story of that case and then? how like how that all led to uh the overturning of Roe v. Wade and even some of the some of the political backgrounds and and what was going on the the leaks and everything um if you want to talk a little bit about that yeah sure so um Dobbs was a challenge to a 15-week abortion ban um in Mississippi which under existing precedent um was too early right because viability Mm -hmm. was the line and viability is around 24 weeks or so um, and so Mississippi knew when they passed that law that it was unconstitutional. Um, and the whole goal was to get it up to the Supreme Court. And actually, initially, the goal was to try to get the Supreme Court to start shifting the line earlier in pregnancy. Right. They initially Mississippi wasn't even asking the court to overrule Roe. Um, they only shifted their position when Barrett got appointed. Mm. Right. Because then they knew they were like, all right, now we've got mm. the votes. We're, we're going to we're going all in on this. Um, so that was just a really um, I mean, that's just hugely political. Right. Yeah. Like you, you see that this the staffing has changed on the court and you literally change what you're asking um, the court to do. So. Um, so, again, last uh, last abortion clinic um, in Mississippi, Jackson Women's Health. Um, they were the plaintiffs there. Um and, you know, we had this, inc- I mean, everything about this case 
was just bonkers, right? So um, one, you have the court allowing Mississippi to change what it was asking for. Um, two, you had a leak of an early Supreme Court opinion, hmm. which is just, I mean, off the charts. Like that is yeah. just not a thing that happens. Um, and of course, I mean, there was just um, the New York New York Times article that came out very recently that was sort of trying to unpeel all the layers of how that happened. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people have taken the position that it was actually Alito who leaked it and it was a way to hmm. lock people in um, to to his position and to his in his opinion. Maybe so, maybe not. Who knows? Um, but we get the leak um, and then, you know, we sit around <laughs> and, you know, people are thinking, is this really going to be what the what the opinion looks like? And once I saw the leak, I, I was I knew. I knew what they were going to do, right? Like I didn't, I had, I had no hope that they were going to turn that around um, before the case actually came out. Um, and I didn't even, they didn't even really like clean it up or pretty it up. I mean, it's mm. not a very well-reasoned case um, on a lot of different levels. So, you know, essentially what the majority of the court said was that, um, you know, Roe was wrongly decided, that the court never should have decided Roe in the way that it that it did, um, you know, that all of these states from, you know, time immemorial had um, made abortion illegal, that the right to abortion was not something that was, you know, deeply rooted in the history and traditions of the United States, which is, you know, one of the tests that the court will usually use to decide if a right is a fundamental right. Um, and just a lot of, you know, bad history, bad reasoning, you know, all the good stuff. Mm. Um, so we got this, you know, um, majority opinion that basically said, you know, we're getting out of the business of abortion, which of course they haven't, nor will, and, mm. and they won't. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to get out of the business of abortion. We're going to give it back to the states, and you know, this, the states can do, you know, what they what they think is right here. Um, that was the majority, and then we had an interesting concurrence from um, everybody's good friend, <laughs> uh, Justice Thomas. Um, who basically said, well, if Roe was wrong, then this whole line of cases that are basically rooted in the idea of privacy or what we call substantive due process, all of those cases are wrong. So, you know, the marriage equality case is wrong and cases um, giving us a right to access contraception. Those cases are wrong. And um, wouldn't loving versus Virginia and interracial marriages be under that as well? Oh, but that wasn't wrong. That wasn't wrong. (laughs) Well, for him. Definitely not. Yeah, that was perfect. Um, it was it was it was so it was such an obvious choice not to include that <laughs> in this list of cases. Right. I mean, he's he's the worst. But, um, you know, so we had the opinion from him that was basically like it was basically an invitation, really. Right. It's a, basically an invitation to conservative organizations that that like to bring all kinds of cases, um, you know, to say, bring it on, right? We are ready to start getting rid of some of these rights that we don't think should exist in our constitutional order. Um, and I think that's a really important point that people look at Dobbs and think, wow, this is this is a really bad thing for abortion. It's not just a bad thing for abortion, right? What they have done here is completely set up a paradigm that allows them to knock down right after right after right going forward, which of course they did, you know, with affirmative action, right? Hmm. Um, as soon as they got the chance to do that, they did that. And we've got, you know, these other cases that are that are lining up. So, um, you know, we you have to be really careful about um, thinking, oh, well, um, 
you know, this case is about this issue. And so therefore, that's the only thing we have to worry about, because anything that sort of sets up that kind of huge precedent, um, which is what the court did here, um, allows them to then, you know, going forward, say, well, this is what we did in Dobbs. So we're going to do it again here. And this is what we did in Dobbs. And so we're going to do it again here. Hmm. Um, And the implications of that are so much broader Hmm. than abortion. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because um, it, it, as you were sort of alluding to, um, you know, Roe had privacy protections embedded yes. in there, you know, and 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 that just like that kind of runs roughshod over some of the what we might consider basic fundamental rights of Americans. Absolutely. But now all of that is is called into question. I mean, based in based on. Um, <laughs> our our favorite justice's concurrence um mm-hmm. but yeah like <laughs> ugh, was amy coney barrett the only woman involved in that uh in agreement was it the rest were all men Am yeah I correct on that yes that's right so all the women that's except right. for amy amy coney barrett were di- in disagreement with the men basically that's exactly right surprise exactly surprise surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah which is basically how all these cases are mm-hmm. coming oh, out yeah. now right they've yeah. got their six person majority and 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 they're gonna you know they're gonna um do as much as they can with those yeah. numbers. Yeah. Um, so the future is, I mean, so I'll, I'll just, just to throw out another wrinkle into this, right? So we've got the Mifepristone case now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's going on now too, which is about um, access to one of the two medications that are used for medication abortion. Um, medication abortions can happen up to 10 weeks into pregnancy um, and they are incredibly safe. Um, you know, the medications were approved over 20, you know, 20 years ago in this country. And we were even behind because they've been approved in France. And, you know, so, um, you know, we know that, the, that, that these things are safe. Um, so people think, oh, the Mifepristone case, it's about medication abortion. Well, yes, but it's also about whether the Supreme Court um, has to give deference to decisions made by federal agencies, Right. Because essentially what the court would be saying if it decided that Mifepristone needs to come off the market or that the ways that the FDA has regulated Mifepristone are problematic is saying we know better than the FDA, Hmm. which is insane. Hmm. Right. Um, You know, like like if I have to make a healthcare decision or if I have to decide what vacation I want. I, w- I really would prefer that the FDA is working that out rather than like Justice Kavanaugh <laughs> right. and Amy Comey Barrett, right? right? I mean, that just makes no sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can imagine what that looks like if the court says we don't have to defer to fed- the expertise of federal agencies anymore, right? So think about, you know, environmental regulation. Think about, I mean, all sorts of things that could start to fall by the wayside. Mm. So, you know, the world's not so bright yeah yeah there's like just looking at at this at a quick glance it it just seems like the supreme court is trying to amass as much power as they can oh yeah Mm. yeah that's something that seems to be shifting right now extraordinary to watch yeah that's frightening just a sense of um you know we can be as um out of touch with reality as we want to be and you can't do anything about it Mm mm-hmm Right, hmm. like that's that's what it feels like yeah. the Supreme Court is saying to us right now. Yeah. Which, like, presidents, senators, congressmen, they all have terms and they all have things you can yes. do if there's problems. If something is problematic, right. there's ways to hold people accountable. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like on the Supreme. Not the, the Supreme, Supreme Court. No, there's, 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 and they Those don't. They don't even want accountability yeah. right no. now. That's right. Yeah. 
That's right. Right. I mean, the, the, the level of um, resistance to the idea of having a code of ethics. Right. <laughs> all God. judges have, have <laughs> significant codes of ethics. Why should you all be exempt yeah. from that? I mean, it's just, ugh, it's infuriating. Ugh, it is. So um, now. Can we, can we so, go back to Texas for a moment? Yeah, let's go back to Texas. <laughs> yeah, let's go back to Texas. <laughs> we were saying all bad things from yeah. Texas before. <laughs> there is a current Texas case that is uh, making uh, headlines. Oh, can you give yeah. us some insight onto that situation? Yeah. Um, so Texas. So one of the things that's interesting about um, what the court did in Dobbs when it threw away Roe um, is that Roe had, you know, certain floors. You can't totally ban abortion. Um, and if you do ban abortion at any point, you have to have an exception for the life or health of the pregnant person. Right. That was required. <laughs> that's out the door. So, you know, states ostensibly could have abortion um, statutes that have no exceptions whatsoever. So if right? you're a so woman and states... your life is at risk and you could die too bad, too bad. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, states could choose to do that. Um, so what Texas has done and, and a lot of states already took out their rape and incest exceptions. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So and then there was one I can't remember which state it was, but there was a debate going on in the state legislature. um, And one of the senators was arguing um, that, yes, the rape exception, but not the incest exception, which is super sketchy. Wow. (laughs) That tells me something about that senator. Keep that to yourself. Right. Um, Deeply, deeply problematic. But um, so Texas has a statute that is basically a ban. Um, pretty much from the beginning of pregnancy. Um, and they have an exception. And the exception is it's written so poorly. Um, but the exception basically says if if there is, you know, a, a risk to the, the life of the mother, um, and then it has sort of two categories, right? So it has one category, which is um, an actual you will die, basically, if you stay pregnant. Um, and the second category is you will have... Um, a, a substantial impairment. Um, so essentially the same language that's used for the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? A substantial impairment um, to a major life activity, right? Which, so, um, you know, we have this exception and a, a number of states have these medical exceptions. And the concern of a lot of physicians has been, we don't know when these actually apply, right? Because it's not mm-hmm. like doctors were sitting down and saying, okay, let's craft these exceptions in a way that makes sense to us right. as physicians, right? It's a bunch of like bozos from the state <laughs> legislature. Yeah. Um, and so Texas has this exception and there is this, you know, lovely woman, uh, Kate Cox, who's married and who has a couple of kids at home already. Um, and she became pregnant and, you know, 20 or so weeks into her pregnancy, um, finds out that the baby has uh, trisomy 18, which is a very bad um, fetal anomaly, which typically leads either to a stillbirth um, or um, a baby who is born and then dies very quickly um, after being born. Now, if you stay pregnant, there are various kinds of risks that can happen um, if you stay pregnant, including potentially the risk of death um, and certainly the risk of impairing her fertility going forward, right? So that they wanted a third baby. Um, this this baby is not going to survive. If they wanted to try again, um, potentially staying pregnant with this baby would keep her from being able to do that. Um, so goes to court um, um, because her doctor 
wasn't willing to perform the abortion, even though the doctor was, you know, very clear, this is an abortion that should happen. Um, because in Texas, if you perform an abortion and you're not, and you're, and you're not within the exception, you lose your medical license, potentially you can get, you know, life in prison, you know, right. There are Mm. reasons that people wouldn't want to risk that. Um, so they go to court and they sue and they say, um, you know, we want an order that allows, uh, Kate Cox to have this abortion because it is a necessary abortion for her in the trial court. So the judge who initially sees the information and hears the testimony from, um, the doctor says this definitely meets the medical exception. Um, you can have your abortion. Um, she protects, um, the, uh, the hospital, she protects the doctor. Um, she also has to protect, um, Kate Cox's husband because Texas also has an aiding and abetting law. If you drive Um, someone to an abortion clinic, you can be sued. It's Mm -hmm. it's crazy when I think about these things. Yeah. Right. I mean, the, the ways in which they are trying to triangulate to make it as difficult as possible. Um, you know, I, I would be impressed if it wasn't so horrifying. Um, so she gets the order, um, and before she can, you know, have the abortion, um, Ken Paxton, the lovely attorney general mm-hmm. from Texas, um, he says, uh, you know, nobody can perform the abortion. He literally sends a letter to other hospitals in Texas saying, anybody who performs this abortion, I will come after you, <laughs> basically. Wow. <My> God. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just it, it, tremendous. And then uh, the Texas Supreme Court um, gets the case because there's an appeal. Essentially, what the Texas Supreme Court said was you didn't you didn't use the magic words, right, that the testimony from the doctor has to say these specific things that are in the statute. It has to say, you know, in my reasonable medical judgment um, and what the doctor said was in my good faith judgment as a as a doctor which is clearly super different oh, from reasonable yeah. medical judgment, right? <laughs> it's got to be totally different. Um, and so basically, you know, the Texas Supreme Court said um, it's possible that this is a situation where an exception could apply, but it hasn't been proven yet. Um, and so we're not going to allow this to go forward either. And so she left the state, right? Mm. I mean, that that was the option that was left to her. And she was in a position where she could do that, where she could actually leave the state. Hmm. Not everybody's going to be in that position. Not everybody has the money. Not everybody has the means yeah. to take time yeah. off work. All exactly. the different pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Of yeah. That. Most most people who have abortions in this country already have children. So if mm-hmm. I have to travel 800 miles to get an abortion, I got to figure out who's going to take care of my mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to take time off of work, and that assumes I have a job where I can just take time off of work. Mm-hmm. Yep. I have to pay for a hotel. I have to pay for travel. Um, if it's a multiple day procedure, I have to stay there, you know, for more than a couple of days. I mean, it's just. Yeah. Um, it's just incredible. And, you know, part of what was so profoundly disturbing when you sort of listen to people like, you know, Ken Paxton and other, you know, pro-life uh, groups from Texas sort of talking about this case and their position was, um, you know, here's this woman who wants to kill her baby because the baby has uh, a disability. That's just, That's not you know, right. I mean, to reduce yeah. it to something that is just so, and to be so cruel, mm-hmm. right? Um, the cruelty of saying to someone, you are care, you have a pregnancy that cannot be brought to fruition. You are not going to give birth to a child who can live. So you're 20 weeks pregnant. You're going to stay pregnant for 20 more weeks until that fetus dies oh inside God. of your body. 
right? Which is super, super risky. Mm-hmm. Or until the point where you have to either be induced, so you have to labor to to produce a dead baby, um, or you have to have a C-section to give birth to a dead baby, um, and just completely ignoring the the physical and and mental anguish mm. that is involved in asking someone to do that. And there are certainly women who make that choice, right? Who find out this is not a viable pregnancy. I'm going to stay pregnant. I actually, I had um, a healthcare provider many years ago. I loved her so much. She's a nurse practitioner um, and she was pregnant. And I, and I came to see her when she was probably about halfway through her pregnancy. And I think because she knew what kind of work that I do and the things that I work on, she said, um, you know, she started telling me that this, that the pregnancy wasn't viable, that there were, you know, all these sorts of issues um, with the, the, the baby, um, but that she and her husband had decided that she was going to continue the pregnancy and that, that was their choice, right? And people make that choice, Mm -hmm. but it's very different to be forced into that position and Ken Paxton and other people um, feel like it's perfectly fine to force someone into that position. And they're not the ones who have to bear the physical and emotional burden um, of doing that to someone, Mm -hmm. right? And so they can stand on their little soapbox and they can be as self-righteous as they they want to be and, you know, completely ignore um, the fact that women have agency, (laughs) (laughs) that, you know, women deserve to be able to make tough choices for themselves and not have those choices um, made for them, Um, that everybody doesn't have your same religious belief about pregnancy or about the role that women should play um, in the world. Um, And so, you know, I, I think that I'm not, you know, I'm not a particularly religious person. Um, I have deep respect for people um, who are people of faith. I grew up with a lot of folks. You know, I grew up in a black church, mm. right? I, lots of people around me um, who are very, very religious. Um, and I respect that. What I don't respect is when you are telling me I have to live your religion. Right. Right. And particularly when living your religion puts me at risk in a whole host of different ways. Mm-hmm. It's so, it's so fucking arrogant and yes just a hundred percent i mean and and these are the the same people who will who will constantly talk about humility we need to be humble before god (laughs) and so on and so forth meanwhile they they come up with all of these bullshit arguments for why they can impose their systems onto us and i think the part that that gets to me and that i find hard hardest to swallow is the amount is is the role that men are playing in in trying to legislate women's bodies. I think yes. whenever I see, I mean, it's one thing listening to women debate these topics and discuss them. I may not agree with another woman or or a, a trans man, somebody who actually has mm-hmm. their body invested in how these decisions are going to play out. I don't want to exclude yep. trans men from this conversation or non-binary folks who have wombs. But at yeah. the same time, having cis men <laughs> um, who always seem to have an opinion uh, and right. and... Uh, and what you mentioned about um, autonomy, I forget which of you was saying that, but of what, of women's autonomy, I think that yeah. is ultimately at the crux of men mm-hmm. who feel the need to get into yes. these debates with women is really That's there is right. a sense from these specific men that they have the right to control women overall. That's right. Not even. Yeah. But this is one aspect for them of being able to take control over women and their yeah. own autonomy. Yeah. And so those passionate Absolutely. men just 
they trigger something in me because there's an overall thing going on in them that's just about controlling women. And it's terrifying. And, you know, the other thing that I find really problematic is this is this way of sort of saying, um, you know, women were made for a purpose and your purpose is to have babies. And if you die having a baby, well, that's just, you know, you're a martyr, basically. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, That is, you know, that's the greatest sacrifice that a woman could make to die, you know, while trying to trying to have a baby. And it's like, maybe I don't want to make that sacrifice. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Maybe I'd rather be alive, you know. Um, And so, you know, so much of this is fundamentally about how a lot of men think about women, Mm. right? And think about what we are good for um, and what purpose we are meant to serve on this earth. And there's, you know, there's something really powerful about being in a room. And I've been in these rooms, you know, where some guy stands up and says, you know, how could you, how could you refuse to live the purpose that God made you for? And I'm like, I bring a lot to the table, right? It's, right? Having babies is just a part of what I am capable of doing, you know? And who are you um, to say that that's what God made you for? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. What does it exactly. say for all the women who cannot have babies, maybe even who want to exactly. have babies? I mean, mm-hmm. there's already a stigma mm-hmm. for women who choose not to have and maybe that's can right. have. But what about women who want to and can't? What kind of pressure are you putting on them and their own value? And uh, Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So icky. Yeah. Because uh, those, those inevitably in those circumstances, women are 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 there thinking, well, I can't live up to my purpose, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so what do I exist for? How yep. shitty is that? Get out of those churches, yeah. please, ladies. Get right. get out. <laughs> leave them. They're not good. They're not safe for you. <laughs> you have more. Your value and worth goes beyond your ability to to bring babies. Into always, the world. yeah, absolutely, always. Are you an alumnus of an evangelical college or university? Or have you ever wondered what attending or working at one of those schools is like? The Chapel Probation Podcast brings you the stories from students, faculty, and administration who experienced all the racism, the queerphobia, the misogyny, and purity culture weirdness that are kind of the hallmarks of these schools. I'm Scott Okamoto author of Asian American Apostate, Losing Religion and Finding Myself at an Evangelical University, which tells my story of teaching English at an evangelical school and realizing I didn't believe in God or the Bible anymore. I created Chapel Probation as a compliment to my book, but this podcast has become its own community of people who have stories of hurt and pain and stories of triumph during and after their time at evangelical schools. Some of the guests you've probably heard of, but most of them you probably haven't. But all the stories are incredible examples of surviving Christian schools and finding ourselves. You can find Chapel Probation wherever you listen to podcasts, and I hope you'll join us. So there's this whole um, conversation about reproductive rights and and, and that, that landscape. Um, you were the host of another podcast that I produce um, and you're, you're the former host of that podcast and on that podcast hasn't it been nominated for a bunch of awards oh, yeah there yes. are a few awards that it's up for that to, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, brag. I'll brag for the both of you <laughs> exactly <laughs> um, 
But I remember on on an episode of that podcast, you were um, speaking about reproductive justice um, and differentiating it from this concept of reproductive reproductive rights. Could you yeah. elaborate a little bit on that? Absolutely. It is one of my very favorite things to do. Hmm. Um, so reproductive justice is um, a movement that was started by a group of black women um, in the mid 90s. Um, and these were women who, you know, they were activists. They were doing amazing things in their communities across a whole host of issues, including reproductive rights related issues. And they were really frustrated with mainstream reproductive rights organizations, which at the time and, you know, frankly now, um, tend to be run by white women and often uh, white women with with class privilege. Um, and, you know, they really recognized that the the mainstream movement was not focused on thinking about fighting for a number of issues that were deeply relevant, particularly to black women. Mm. And so they started this separate movement um, and it has three tenets to it. Um, which seems simple, but are actually quite complicated. Um, so the first is that every woman has a human right, or I should say every person has a human right um, to decide um, if she wants to become pregnant, um, that she has a human right to decide if she doesn't want to become pregnant or to stay pregnant, um, and to have the resources to make that decision. Um, and third, and this is the one that I think is so important and goes back to something we were talking about before, that um, you have the right to raise your children in safe and healthy environments, mm. right? Um, and so there are these like sort of three pieces to it. And one of the reasons why I think it's so important to talk about ab abortion in the context of reproductive justice um, is that we have to recognize that pregnancy is a moment in time, right? Um, and that, um, you know, you could have a perfect pregnancy, give give birth to a perfect baby um, and then bring that baby home to an apartment that has lead paint on the walls mm -hmm. or bring that baby home to a neighborhood that doesn't have clean water or put that baby um, into a public school um, that is completely a part of the school to prison pipeline. Right. And so, you know, when we just talk about abortion as this one moment of do I stay pregnant or not stay pregnant, and we don't think about the complexity of people's lives, right? So, you know, that woman who has an abortion at 25, at, you know, 40 might be a patient in an infertility doctor's office, right? Hmm. Um, or that woman who chooses not to have that abortion um, at 25 might have her her kids taken away from her at, you know, 30 because she doesn't have enough money to keep the heat on in her house. Mm. Um, so to just talk about this like small slice of the world and just forget about the fact that once those babies are born and exist in the world, um, we should still feel a sense of obligation to them and to their families and to their parents um, is, is part of what, you know, reproductive justice gives us um and it does and it and it very specifically and carefully you know doesn't tell us the only thing that really matters is your your choice right um to have an abortion um particularly because the context in which people make that choice is always going to have various kinds of constraints mm -hmm. right nobody is just sort of you know um you know standing in a room by yourself with full agency saying okay i'm gonna i'm gonna have an abortion right it's 
okay, I've already got two kids at home, or it's I'm pregnant by someone who is a terrible person. <laughs> I don't want to be, you know, yoked to this person for the rest of my life because we have a child together. Um, or this is a, this is, um, you know, a fetus that has an anomaly and I don't want to stay pregnant for 40 weeks knowing that, you know, this is not a baby who can survive or that this is a baby who will suffer. Um, you know, life is really complicated and complex and so many of the discussions that we have really try to sort of flatten that out, right? Um, and, you, and you just can't do that, particularly in this context. And it's really, really frustrating to see people sort of, you know, draw this kind of, you know, either you're going to have the baby or not have the baby um, without thinking about how, how much is involved in making decisions about pregnancy, about parenting, um, um, and about, you know, the, the hopes and dreams that you have for your own life. Right. We're all allowed to have our own sense of who we want to be and how we want to get there and the choices that we want to make. Um, and to decide that there's this group of people in this country for whom that right doesn't exist um, is essentially saying that there's a group of people um, who simply don't deserve the same level of respect um, as other people do. Mm. Sounds like um the pro-justice, am I saying that right? Pro-reproductive justice. Reproductive justice. Reproductive yeah. justice as opposed to re reproductive rights is um, mm -hmm. a very much uh, pro-life on the more expansive version yes. of what that word should 100%. mean. It's mm. it, Whereas exactly. that term is being used for a very, <laughs> has been very misused. Actual true pro-life involves so many different other people besides Ugh. just a fetus. It involves the mom. It involves the other siblings. It involves the entire yep. family, the community surrounding. The community, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. All of it, all of it. And and I haven't even, I mean, we've had this whole conversation. I haven't even talked about the fact that, you know, this country has the highest maternal mortality rate of any developed mm -hmm. nation, right? Yeah. The gall, the nerve, the audacity know, right? <laughs> to insist <laughs> that people stay pregnant in a country um, that doesn't even care enough yeah. about women to keep us alive during our pregnancy, I... right? I have definitely thought over this topic as I move from Canada to the U.S. The idea of mm. this topic specifically has come to mind in terms of having a baby in the U.S. and what that looks like versus Canada. Yes. And and yes. then and then I do have to consider when I think of you know reproductive justice movement and white women versus black women, the discrepancy yes. as well. The concerns when I start digging in a little bit, you know, into okay, yep. huge mortality rate for women. Wait, what? Mm -hmm. How can this yeah. gap be this significant and huge? That's right. Yeah. And then understanding how when the movements are led up by people who aren't being affected and and mm -hmm. how much of a difference that makes to the overall picture Absolutely. as well. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's really, um, you know, it's the, you know, it's the hypocrisy that gets me, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like a state like, you know, um, you know, like, like Texas saying, okay, um, we don't want you to have an abortion, um, but we also don't want to provide Medicaid for more than a couple of months at postpartum. Right. Right. We could extend it to a full year, but we don't want to do that because we don't want to spend that money. Right. So it's 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 the things that people get away with, mm -hmm. right? the rhetoric that they get to use. And then, you know, nobody is challenging them on all these other bits and pieces, all these ways in which they are cruel you know, to people of color, to, to poor people, to people who are undocumented, mm. um, you know, they just get away with it. Yeah, yeah.
you have a quote pulled up that you want to I read? I did. Okay. <laughs> you saw me Googling this quote. <laughs> I, I, I love this quote on this topic. I think it's just so relevant. It says, the unborn are convenient group of people to advocate for. They never make demands of you. They're morally uncomplicated. Unlike the incarcerated or the chronically poor, they don't resent your condescension or complain that you're not politically correct. Unlike widows, they don't ask you to question patriarchy. Um, unlike orphans, they don't need money, education, or childcare. Unlike aliens, they don't bring all that racial, cultural, and religious baggage that you dislike. They allow you to feel good about yourself without any work at creating or maintaining relationships. And when they are born, you can forget about them because they cease to be the unborn. You can love the unborn yeah. and advocate for them without substantially challenging your own wealth, power, or privilege without reimagining social structures, apologizing or making reparations to anyone. They are, in short, the perfect people to love. If you want to claim to love Jesus, but actually dislike people who breathe prisoners, <laughs> immigrants, the sick, the poor, widows, orphans, all groups that are specifically mentioned in the Bible, they all get thrown under the bus for the unborn. Yes. Uh, that's mm -hmm. a Methodist pastor, David uh, Barnhart. But it's one of my yeah. my favorite. Friends. I love yeah, that quote. Yeah. That's a great quote. Yeah, I think yeah. it's so powerful. I mean, I think that the so many of the people who that quote is directed at wouldn't even get it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> right. No, um, and that, that's what's so, what's so, what's so um, frustrating about mm -hmm. that, but it's, it's so true. Right. I mean, there's no, um, there's nobody to push against you when you are the advocate for the unborn. Right? And it sounds These, so grand. Yeah. And you feel like such a totally. hero and you could be the most Absolutely. morally superior person around by saying, I am defending the most defenseless. Yes. But really what you mean is someone who can't debate anything with you at the yes, same time. So that's it's exactly very, right. very yep. convenient too. Yep. Yes. Yeah. So any thoughts um, on what the future holds for women and others who can become pregnant in the U.S.? Do you Are you hopeful in any way? Um, do you think all of this is a lost cause somewhere in between? What are your thoughts? Um, I've been working really hard on being more of an optimistic person because oh, that I is not my steady state. Oh, I want to listen to what state. you have to say right <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so that's what I've been really up. working on. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there are a few things that make me optimistic. Um, one is that I think that there are a lot of people who have been shaken out of their complacency, particularly young people, mm -hmm. right? People to whom it never occurred to them that having an abortion might become something illegal in this country. Um, and I love that that has fired up, you know, whole groups of people. And I think that that's valuable. And I think that, um, you know, we are going to see some um, really powerful movements. And we've already seen it, right? Some of the ballot mm -hmm. measures um, coming out of states where you would not have expected Kansas, it. Kansas, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, I would not have put my money on nope. that, right? Um, so that, I think, is a really good thing. And I think it bodes well. Um, it bodes well for the future. Um, I do think that there that that part of what this creates is more pressure on some of those states that have um, not cared deeply about um, babies or women post-pregnancy or, or um, you know, other pregnant people post-pregnancy. Um, it creates more pressure on them mm -hmm. to do better and to be better, right? And we're going to make you stay pregnant, then maybe, like, maybe we should think about, you know, uh, uh, parental leave, Maybe we should think about making sure hmm. the kids I am in our state so are insured. Sorry, I'm for cutting, and I cannot 
like Canada, you get a year off if you have a baby. And it's not your obscene. A year minus two weeks. Come on, let's not go crazy here. But and you can have (laughs) a year and a half off. The second year they'll cut your pay, but you without them (sighs) being allowed to replace you, where you your got your position is guaranteed. And this is not job to job. This is not company to company decision state to state. This is federally mandated. This is the government of Canada saying if you pushed a baby out of you or had it cut out of you and you've gone through this trauma, you're body needs time to recover you yes. can't be given six weeks and then poop pop yourself back in <laughs> right. you know and That's uh right. and six weeks if you're lucky if you're lucky yeah. I, six weeks if you're lucky it is so horrifying right? from an as an outsider to this system to imagine countries exist where this is normal and and a country like yeah. the u.s that assumes to be so you know compared <sighs> to other places whatever they imagine we're the best we're number one <laughs> it <Right>. is it <laughs> like yeah. as a, just yeah, I, I think there's things I've taken for granted as a Canadian when I now that I'm moving into the US um, that are shocking uh, and horrifying. And this is this is one of the top of my list is just what you just said maternity leave. I, I still can't. I, I'm not even close to being able to wrap my head around how things are right. done here. It's appalling. It is appalling. Mm. Right. Um, and then and, you know, we pat ourselves on the back for having, you know, um, the Family and Medical Leave Act. Um which doesn't you don't get paid? No, you can, yeah, right. You can take time off and not get paid. Who can do How that? Many people can afford right. to just not get paid for months, especially right? if you're doing while you're something. taking care yeah, of a new baby. Exactly, <laughs> especially if you're taking time off for to care for a newborn. It's that's yeah. like the I mean, most expensive just, time in life. Yes, and it's exactly. so yeah, it's so mind blowing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, so, you know, I, I would like to think that 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 this moment creates a lot more pressure <laughs> um, on these folks who like to talk this big game um, to actually put some money where their mouths are. We'll see if that mm. plays itself out. But, you know, there, this this is a there is an opportunity for that to happen. Um, and then, you know, the third thing that is exciting for me is it's really a moment where people are paying a lot more attention to what's happening locally, which I think is so, so, so critical. Um, You know, there are states that have amazing state constitutions, um, you know, state constitutions that specifically provide a right to privacy, Mm -hmm. um, state constitutions that actually have an equal rights amendment in them, which we have never been able to, to get into the, into the the federal constitution, right? We don't have an ERA in the federal um, constitution. I think, I think a lot of people don't realize how much is not in our constitution. Right. You don't have a right to education. Um, you know, there's no equal rights amendment. But we have, we have guns. Right to housing. We have guns. In the we house. do have guns. As many guns as you want. Yes. And that, you know, that's who needs parental leave when you have as many guns as you want. Exactly. You know? Oh, man. Um, so it's really it's really quite stunning. So, you know, I think that people are recognizing that the organizing that needs to be done on a local level, both in terms of elections, you know, if you're, again, I'm right across from Pennsylvania where they elect judges, hmm. which by the way is bonkers, that's, but whatever, that's um, you know, then you need to be at every election where judges are, are being, you know, put on the bench, that those things matter. Um, so again, right, this is a moment where people hopefully are, are having their eyes opened and are feeling, you know, sort of galvanized. And also, frankly, recognizing that, you know, the rights that we do have are precarious. And mm. I don't think that people were, a lot of people, right? I mean, there are lots of us who have, um, identities that put us in a position where we're constantly thinking about how precarious our rights are, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, I, I, 
it's it's only since 2015 that I can get married yeah. right? because I'm gay. Right. Um, you know, and that is that is um, a right that the Supreme Court could take away like that mm-hmm. um, if they chose to. So, you know, there's a lot that we have to be vigilant about that. We can't just sort of sit back on our couch and say, OK, well, you know, this is America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, um, because quite frankly, you know, from the beginning, this country wasn't made for all of us. Right. This country has never been about protecting all of us, right? It's been a very narrow band of people um, who who wrote the Constitution. I mean, the thing that I always say is, right, we, are, we, we have such a, um, a commitment to this document that was written by people who thought it was okay to own other human beings. Right. Right? Yeah. I mean – what? Yeah. <laughs> right? Please don't talk to me about how important freedom is and this, that, and the other thing, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, we we live in a country and we live in a time and a place where um, we just can't be complacent because we've seen what comes from being complacent. We've seen what it has done to our Supreme Court. We've seen, you know, what happens when you, you know, don't vote and then a Donald Trump becomes your president, right? We've seen what happens when um, you don't pay attention to, you know, who's ending up on your local school board. And next thing you know, you know, you've got all these moms for liberty who are like, burn the libraries, you know? Right. You, you, you mentioned complacency. You also mentioned in that, you know, 2015 and the right to get married as a gay person. I mean, I'm looking over Nate's shoulders. And the next question was, I mean, I'm just going to read it out, but it ties exactly into this. You might have already answered this. I feel like what you were just saying sort of answers this question. But in case you had any other thoughts on it, uh, mm-hmm. from 2019 to 2023, you served as the co-dean of Rutgers Law School mm-hmm. in Camden. You were the first black person, the first woman and the first LGBTQ person to be named uh, a dean at Rutgers Law. So and the question is, how does this identity inform your work? And I feel like you have already started to talk about that. Do you have any Absolutely. anything else to, to add on to that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the first the thing that I always say about that, you know, right, so I became the dean um, in 2019. And, you know, the folks on my, you know, the publicity folks, and the comms folks, they were so excited, mm-hmm. right. And so they were like, you know, I'm I'm in the newspaper and doing all these interviews and stuff like that. Um, And the thing that I always say about that is that it took longer for my law school to have somebody like me, right, to have a black person um, as the dean um, than it took for the United States to elect a black president, Hmm. right? You don't get to pat yourself on the back Mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. You had nothing, right? Right. The person who I am is is not because of anything that Rutgers Law School did, right? so, you know, I think it's really important to, and I was just talking to somebody about this the other day, there are still so many firsts that have not happened mm-hmm. in this country. Yeah. So many firsts that haven't happened in this country. And there are still so many ways that this country um, makes it harder for whole swaths of people to be Mm -hmm. successful. Um, And we're watching things being peeled away, right? So, you know, the Supreme Court's decision and um, students for fair admissions, um, you know, that's going to have a real impact on Mm -hmm. who gets access to higher education. And if you can't get access to higher education, then how do you become the dean of a law school, right? Right. Um, So, you know, for me, um, you know, one of the things that I think is really powerful about growing up as a black person in America. And I don't want to speak for every black person, but I think that for a lot of us, you know, we grow up with a fundamental understanding of how deeply flawed this country is and a fundamental sense that 
things can get better um, and things are better than they have been, but that you can never, again, you can never be complacent, mm-hmm. right? You cannot rest on your laurels that, um, that there are lots of ways in which um, this is not a country that cares about everybody's success. Yeah. Um, and I, and I carry that with me, right? It's, it was a huge part of how I thought about being a Dean. It was a huge part of how, um, I interacted with students. It was a huge part of, um, you know, how I thought about, you know, hiring people, um, you know, who was going to be in the law school and what kind of opportunities were we going to give to people who wouldn't necessarily always get opportunities. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a really great position to be in. I mean, there were, um, I could write, you know, pages and pages of things that I did not like about being Dean. Um, and it was a really, really tough job. And because I was a first on these multiple level, le- levels, um, I would say that, uh, you know, Rutgers got a threefer in me. Um, but because I was a first on so many levels, you know, it, it makes you hyper visible, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, people are really paying attention. And, you know, there are some people who really want to see you fail and some mm. people who really want to see you be um, successful. So there's, you know, this this different kind of layer that happens there. But, um, you know, the, the best thing I will say about being a first in that way um, was the number of folks, younger people, who I got to meet in various sorts of settings and whether it was, I got invited to um, go to a third grade class at a charter school in Camden. I've now done it two or three times Hmm. and I love it. Um, And the first time I did it and it's all, you know, black and brown kids. They're, you know, nine, eight or nine years old. And I think about the number of students of color who I have taught over the years who say so many of our students at Rutgers are first gen, first Mm -hmm. gen law school, first gen college. And students of color who will say to me, you know, I never met a lawyer who was a person of color until I came to law school. And so every time I go and talk to those third graders, I think all of them will be able to say, I have met a lawyer who looks like me. Hmm. Right. And it's it's so hard to imagine yourself in a role if you've never seen anybody who looks like you who's been doing that work. Right. So that, you know, that's such a it's it feels like a small thing. Um, but it was really important to me and whether it was, you know, meeting with third graders or talking to high schoolers or, um, you know, talking to aspiring law students, you know, those are, it's, it's important to take on these roles as difficult as they might be. Um, because if you're the first, your job is to prop that door open so that you are not the last. And that's Mm. how I always thought about the job. Mm. I love that. Your job is to prop that door open so you're not the last. Yeah. And I just think of the intensity and magnitude of that. I mean, I could relate only as a woman in a patriarchal church where women were not put in positions of power. And then when they asked me mm. to, I had such a reaction against it because like, it was like, but you guys don't do this. Are you sure? Like, and I had so yeah. much questions. And then the pushback that I received from so many people in my community because it was a patriarchal church um, was immense and intense. And that was just on one level. Like that was just being a yeah. woman in a male-led environment. But then to think add on another layer of being a black woman, add on another layer of being a queer woman and just the um the pressure because I felt a lot of pressure, which is 
one yeah. of one of those three was enough for me. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, but like and and people convinced me to pursue and continue when to pursue that when I was asked to because initially I almost wanted to say no and they were like, yeah. uh, you know, there are women in your congregation who need to see a woman in this yes. role and I was like. Oh, yeah, that would have been very helpful for me growing up if I had a yes. female youth pastor. I never had had one growing Absolutely. up. You know, so. Absolutely. And now being in a, an affirming church that has a female pastor yes. and how much that has um, been yes. healing for me. To, yes, to... totally. And even, you know, just recognizing how, um, you know, the circumstances in which and, you know, because I've been at the same law school for a long time and I've sort of, and, you know, I've seen the succession of white male deans, mm. you know, that that came before me, um, you know, many of whom I think are wonderful people and who I'm very good friends with. And um, but, you know, the ways that I responded to certain circumstances that that were that were completely rooted in who I am and mm. my identity. Right. My ability to, for instance, like to recognize, oh, um, we're, we're treating this white male faculty member really differently than we typically have treated, you know, faculty members of color or, or female faculty members and saying that, right. Saying it out loud. I just want everybody Ooh, to boy. recognize <laughs> that we are doing this thing and that's not how we usually do it. I'm you sure know? that went over slammingly with people. Okay, everybody was really glad, you know, when I point out things like that they and it stand up and really cheer. good about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But it's great, you know, it's great to be in a room and to say, um, I've been here for 20 years and um, I'll actually I'll give you a perfect example. Um, you know, there's this particular Ooh, I love, way. I love we, the examples. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there is this particular way um, that we used to constitute some of our committees um, at the law school. Um, and essentially it was, you know, the dean, along with, you know, other people in the administration would create a slate and you present that slate to the faculty and the faculty always just signs off on it. Right. That was just 100 percent the way it had functioned um, literally for like you know, 15, 16 years. Um, and the first time that I did it, um, somebody raises her hand in the meeting and says, um, you know, I'm really getting uncomfortable with the way that we do this. You know, I really think that the faculty needs to have more input in how we're putting together these committees and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, okay, because ever since I've been here, this is the way that we've done it. And now you want to change the way that we do it. That's interesting. Hmm. You know, and just, just saying it like that, that's interesting. Hmm. Um, and then having a conversation with people afterwards and saying, you know, I, I am very clear on what just happened here. <laughs> I'm very clear on why all of a sudden, you know, there's this urge to change the rules and I'm not going to pretend like, you know, it just, you just felt that way today. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why suddenly you're uncomfortable with what we have been doing for the last, you know, 20 years. Um, you know, and these are people who I've known for a long time and who, you know, I am friendly with, even if not friends. And um, so it's really, you know, it was it was a it was an eye opening experience. Um, one I'm really glad that I did. And one that I'm really glad is over. <laughs> well, yeah. we're excited yeah. for you as you embark on this new chapter with Thank you. playing piano and 
and <laughs> relaxing yeah. and yeah you've you've it's been a hard-earned sabbatical and and uh excited for you going forward thank you did you have any thank you so much any questions need to go that you wanted to yeah so i just a uh, couple wrap-up type questions um do you sure. have any any resources that um you know as far as the, the the various subjects we've talked about today um any resources that people could turn to whether um resources that are like aimed at lay people or even perhaps more academic resources do what do you what do you have for us and then anything that you share with us i'll i'll go ahead and put in the show notes as well sure um so for people who are interested in like a sort of basic primer on reproductive justice, there's this really great book that's called Reproductive Justice. Mm. Um, and it's written by Loretta Ross, who is one of the founders of the reproductive justice movement um, and a, uh, a professor named Ricky Solinger. Um, and that's a really great resource for people who just want to understand the context more right and so it's everything from you know the history of forced sterilizations in this country mm. to um you know welfare reform to prisons right and and really pulling it all together so i think that's a really great resource um if you're someone who is interested in what is happening um in terms of abortion in this country um one place that's a really great place to get data um is from the guttmacher institute they're really sort of the biggest um, uh, abortion researcher, mm-hmm. um, research organization um, in this country, and they are very reliable. So if that's a piece that you want to know more about, that's a really great place to get that information. Um, and then if you're interested in the litigation that's going on, and I will say again, abortion litigation is going nowhere. We will be seeing these cases for years and years and years to come. Mm. And they will be going up to the Supreme Court. Um, So the Center for Reproductive Rights is a really good place to try to keep up um, with a lot of that litigation uh, that is going on. Um, And then I think that the last recommendation that I will make, which I think is a really good one as well, um, in terms of reproductive justice, is a book called um, Killing the Black Body, which was written by Dorothy Roberts. And Dorothy Roberts, she's now a professor um, at Penn, but Dorothy is like, um, everybody reads Dorothy, right? Like Dorothy is just the queen of it all. Um, and she wrote this book called Killing the Black Body many, many years ago. And it was just, it's this really great um, collection that helps people understand the many ways in which Black women in particular in this country um, have really been abused and denigrated, um, often through legal channels. Um, so, you know, I think that there are lots of different spaces for people to start to understand the complexity of some of the issues that are reproductive justice issues. And I think a lot of that understanding has to begin with um, a really stark um, acceptance of this country's very deeply tragic history. Mm, yeah. Super important to understanding the context. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And finally, um, where can people find you online if they want to follow you, if they want to get a sense for, you know, the, do you take pictures of food and post it to social media? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I, I, I have abandoned Twitter. Uh, mm. I still, I still mm-hmm. have my account open. I actually, I deactivated it and then I reactivated it because I needed to DM someone. Oh. <laughs> um, but I, I'm not posting there anymore because mm-hmm. I'm scared of Twitter at this point. So Insane. I'm on Blue Sky okay. and I'm at Professor Much, M-U-T-C-H. 
um, on Blue Sky. And that's really, and, and LinkedIn, obviously, mm-hmm. but, you know, LinkedIn yeah. is not particularly interesting. <laughs> um, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to get back into the, the swing of things on Blue Sky. Okay. So. That's cool. the, the place to find me. I know you said that was your final question, Nate, oh. but I have one. Knowing that you're from Camden, New Jersey, yeah. and I'm talking to two people here oh, that are no. from New Jersey. She's oh. going to make us fight. <laughs> <laughs> I, this is particular. Yes, there's essential Jersey. I, I agree on that. I do agree with that. <laughs> that wasn't the question I was going to go with. We okay. mentioned food and um, and we North oh. and South Jersey questions. So this is only people who are not from New Jersey need to know New Jersey. People have arguments about unimportant things so we've been talking about very important (laughs) things through this whole podcast i figured we'd finish on a very unimportant note but to jerseyans these are Mm -hmm. critical questions so what is that sandwich called that you guys eat in new jersey (laughs) is it called pork roll or is it called taylor ham that's what i want to (laughs) know nate really has a lot of love we're gonna count to three and we're both gonna say it at the same time all right ready one two three taylor ham yeah, of course. <laughs> and here's why. You see, you see, Nate, this. stop it. Do you stop see, it, stop do you it. see, do you see the zip code on this shirt, right? North Jersey I here, will... South Jersey here. So oh. that's why you have the difference. Here's my, here's my yes. diplomatic take on it. All right. I've never okay. heard so this yet. So it's, it's, you, you've heard, you've heard diplomatic? me. Yeah, it, it, you've never heard me put it as a diplomatic take, but so um, it's like, you know, the difference between Kleenex and tissues. No, now you're right? trying to make your side right. That's not a diplomatic take. No, 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 no. This isn't what, listen, the difference between Kleenex and tissues. Right? I, I have heard plenty of people say tissues. I, I say that. Can you grab me a tissue? But I, but I ordinarily say Kleenex. Right? right. That's no matter what brand it is. No matter what right. brand it is. I get it. Okay. Okay. Right. But right. to me Which is wrong. <sighs> I mean, that's just fact. When I hear someone say pork roll, the only thing that runs through my mind is not whether they are right or wrong. It mm-hmm. is that gives me a sense of where you're from. That's that's mm-hmm. totally fair. So if if matters. you're listening to this and you're not from New Jersey and you're ever around people from New Jersey and you want to distract <laughs> to another topic entirely and get two New Jersey people to argue with each other, this is a go-to. Just letting you all know, this is what even it's even two classic. people from New Jersey who agree with each other on a lot of things, they will become very yes. passionate about this. Even That's two people right. who believe it's the same thing, pork roll or Taylor ham, they will passionately defend their Nate was showing me a video on this yesterday, Absolutely. and I was like, <laughs> oh, so passionate about this all the time, Nate. It's such a, I'm going to have to get used to this in New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? There's, there's so many terrible things in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. If we can fight about, yes. like, total bullshit. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's nice to argue over you know? something unimportant. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Especially when you're right and the other person's wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perfect. Exactly. When yeah. I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. And and an important topic. It's been, we like to say, fun conversations and often can be uncomfortable or challenging conversations. Absolutely. And that's where we like to land is to give people some stuff to chew on. So thank you so much for being willing to spend this time with us and to impart all your knowledge, your insight onto this. Um, it's been It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was super fun. Real quick before we sign off, since we mentioned their award nomination, I want to congratulate today's guest, Kim Mutcherson, the former co-host of the Power of Attorney podcast, and our own Nate Nakao, who's also the producer of that podcast, as well as former co-host Rose Quizon-Villazor, current host Joanna Bond, and executive producer Shanita Carter, 
on winning the Silver Anthem Award in the category of diversity, equity, and inclusion in audio podcast and the category of media awareness. Great job, folks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. We're so glad you decided to join us today. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Spotify, and pretty much every other podcast app. Just search for Full Mutuality on your app of choice or visit our website, fullmutuality.com, for links to all the apps you can subscribe to us on. And if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website. A quick review is one of the best ways you can support us. Speaking of support, you can also partner with us on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you'll be helping us produce this podcast and you'll get access to other content such as exclusive episodes, access to occasional live stream recording sessions, and more. Just head over to patreon.com slash fullmutuality to sign up. Thank you again for hanging out with us today, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content.